Um, could I now invite the Open University Vice-Chancellor, Professor Brenda Gourley, to introduce this afternoon's speaker. Thank you very much. Um, it's a great pleasure for me to uh, extend a very warm welcome to, to all of you to, to this lecture and indeed to the Open University. A special uh, welcome, of course, to our, our visitors. Uh, I believe we've got several overseas visitors in the audience. It's a particular pleasure to have you with us. Puts a nice particular strain on Professor Mason as well, I'm sure, um, <laughs> which is a, a special sort of test. And uh, an additional welcome, of course, to the family and friends of Professor Mason as well, uh, in particular his father, who most of you will know is quite a distinguished scientist in his own right, and what a pleasure it must be for him to be here this evening. Professor Mason has um, more than 20 years experience in both fundamental and applied experimental atomic and molecular physics. And he's a co-author of over 140 publications in referee journals and over 350 conference papers. Hard to believe when he looks so young. <laughs> Believe it. <laughs> He's also the author of a textbook on environmental physics. A major part of his research work has been in the study of the interaction of electrons and photons with molecules. Recent work includes the study of molecular formation in the interstellar medium and on planetary surfaces, and the study of atmospheric processes linked to ozone depletion and global warming, to name only two. Quite a test for me to read out these things that I don't really understand. <laughs> the majority of this work was and is funded by a series of EPSRC grants with additional support from the European Union and the British Council. He was awarded a Royal College University Research Fellowship at University College London in 1990 and established the Molecular Physics Laboratory in 1995. In 1997, in recognition of his standing in this field, he was elected chair of the European Physics Society Electron and Atomic Collisions Group. In 1998, he was elected a fellow of the Institute of Physics and the Europhys of the uh, European Physical Society, and in 1999, appointed an honorary professor at the University of Innsbruck in Austria. He's a member of the EPSRC College and serves on the international panel of the Royal Society. He's also currently coordinator of the Framework 5 Network on Electron and Positron-Induced Chemistry and coordinator of an EFF Network on Collisions in Automatic Traps, uh, an acronym of which is CATS and must have resonance with some people in the audience. Chair of the EU Cost Action Group on Radiation Damage and director of the new EFF Program on Electron-Induced Processing at the molecular level. In September 1998, upon completion of the uh, Royal Society University Research Fellowship, he became a lecturer and in, 99, and in 2000 a reader within the highly successful atomic, molecular and positron physics groups at the Department of Physics and Astronomy, University College London. In 2002, he was appointed Professor of Physics at the Open University. And whilst here, he has co-founded the Interdisciplinary Centre for Astrobiology, and the Centre of Atomic and Molecular Engineering. Ladies and gentlemen, we are delighted 
to have Professor Mason deliver his inaugural lecture, Probing the Molecular World. Professor Mason. Thank you very much, Vice-Chancellor. Well, obviously it is an extreme pleasure to be here with you this evening and to have the opportunity to give my inaugural address. So what I wish to do is to, in the next 50 minutes or so, take you on a tour of the molecular world and the things that we can explore the molecular world with using electrons and light. Now I think we all know that we live in a molecular world. Molecular processes are basically the dominant processes of nature in many areas of science and technology. For example, atmospheric physics and planetary atmospheres with the aurora are dominated by interactions between electrons and the molecules in the atmosphere. Increasingly, it's known that it's being understood that even radiation damage at a cellular level can be understood and explored by understanding the interactions of electrons with the nascent molecules of DNA. In the industrial world, multi-billion industries like the semiconductor industry for the manufacture of computer chips rely upon our knowledge and our understanding of how those discharges that make those chips operate, which is again a process of the interaction of the electron and the gases in those discharges that do the chemistry. And we're living in now a new and exciting time of the nano world, where we actually now have the ability with new machines that we'll talk about later in this talk to manipulate individual molecules on surfaces and sort of play uh, molecular uh, uh, billiards effectively. So what I want to do in this presentation is tell you first of all how we see molecules. How do we know that they're there and how can we monitor what they do? And once we know that, how can we manipulate them to do what we want them to do with say light and electrons? And I'll illustrate those each time with examples of how they actually have real implications for the world. We're not just physicists locked away in a laboratory doing something which is rather interesting to us. It has real applications to the world around us. Now, the idea that, that matter is made up of atoms and molecules, of course, goes back to the Greeks. And these little indivisible particles, they didn't know, they hadn't, didn't, couldn't see them, but they suggested that they were there. These were the two people who first came up with the ideas, Democritus, and Atmos came up with the idea of atoms. But it was really with the time of Avogadro, not so long ago, he, you know, he only lived some 250 years or so ago, that said, okay, these particles, which we are around us, these molecules, are made up of these atoms. And somehow, those atoms come together to make the molecules which drive the chemistry. And one of the fundamental constants that we have is named after Avogadro, Avogadro's number, which tells you that there are six times 10 to the 23 molecules in one gram of material, essentially. So that tells you already that these are obviously very small. Robert Brown, a famous British physicist, English physicist, got the, used the idea 
that somehow these particles could influence something that we could see. And many of you will have heard, of course, of Brownian motion, where you take smoke particles. Now, I'm in a lecture theatre, I'm not allowed to use smoke, it's against the rules, so I can't demonstrate to you this one, so here's an animation of it. Here's my smoke particle, and it moves randomly around because it's being bombarded by the molecules around it, which make it move in a random path. And that was the, in the first indication that there was something hidden behind the world that we could physically see of the molecule. But mole so molecules are obviously fairly small. So the first question is, how do you measure the size of a molecule? How can we just do it here and now? And there's a famous experiment that enables you to do that, which you've probably all seen at school, where you drop an oil drop on water and watch it spread out. Now, uh, if we turn the light out, what we're going to do is take an oil drop and drop it on water, and the volume of the oil is going to expand when the droplet hits the water, and it should expand to be one molecule thick, because oil will just spread out because oil and water don't mix. Now, I've asked for a volunteer, and the Vice-Chancellor kindly agreed to come and volunteer to show this experiment, okay? So I don't think you've ever done a physics experiment before, let alone live. So we're going to try this and see if this works, all right? So you won't see oil terribly well, so I'm going to put a little bit of powder on my water. And the Vice-Chancellor is going to take a drop of oil, and with a very steady hand, as I'm sure she has, let me just put your finger on it here, drop it right in the middle. Shake. Perfect. You don't get to be Vice-Chancellor for nothing, right? There was a certain amount of volume in that oil drop, when it hit the water, it expanded out. It expanded evenly, and you can see it's almost a perfectly circular ring. So I could measure the diameter of that ring, and I know that this is 18 centimetres across, so that must be about 14 centimetres or so. We turn the projector off. The oil has spread out to be one molecule thick. So the volume of the oil has spread out to be pi r squared times the thickness of the volume of the drop, and so We've measured the radius, all we can do is calculate the thickness. Right. Now, the radius of that droplet will be about 16 centimetres. It may have been slightly smaller because you may have got a slightly smaller drop by Chancellor, but technically it would have been that. The volume was small, right? It was a fairly small amount, but there were a lot of molecules in that. So those molecules then spread out across the whole surface, and if you put the numbers in, you should calculate that the molecule is about 1 times 10 to the minus 9 meters, that's the thickness of that oil layer, which you could see. And that's what we call 1 nanometer, okay? And so typical molecules are that kind of size, an incredibly small size. Other molecules are slightly larger. We're going to talk later in the talk about DNA. And if you take human DNA and you pull it out, you might get something, a molecule, it all folded up in the cell, you pull it out, might be a few centimetres long, okay? But that's going to be a very large molecule you're likely to get. All the molecules around us are going to be this size, a few nanometers. Now, there are new types of microscopes, which we're going to talk a little bit about at the end of the talk, which now can image molecules in a particular way. And we'll come and see how they do that at the end. And they're called standing tunneling microscopes and atomic force microscopes. 
And we do have some here at the Elmton University over in chemistry, and we've been using them, and we'll show you an example at the end. But you even with these, it, you, it's hard to see the molecule. And so certainly, until recently, there was no way that that's the way you saw molecules. So the way that we could trace how molecules were behaving in any system was by their spectroscopy. Every molecule has a unique fingerprint. Okay, so Holmes and Watson, they, many of their books, they're exploring the idea that everybody has a fingerprint, that's how you trace the crime. You can trace the molecule in the same way if you can understand that they have a unique spectra. Just to remind you what a spectra is, well, this is my atoms. This is a picture which many of you will have seen, of course, at school, where you actually excite the electrons going around an atom into various orbits. When they relax, they give out characteristic light lines. And so every spec molecule, every atom, has a spectrum, a unique spectrum. So if we measure the spectrum in any particular system, it will tell us what molecules are there. And this is used very widely. This is a lovely picture. This is um, a picture of chlorophyll in the seas around Britain. And actually seeing the, the algae growth, growth, if you like, just taken by the fact that the chlorophyll has a characteristic spectrum. You can image it from space. Many of the environmental questions that we study today, like global warming and ozone depletion, are studied by the fact that the molecules that are responsible for them have a spectral signature which we can see. So you all have heard of the ozone hole over Antarctica. This is a map of the ozone hole over Antarctica taken uh, in September 1991. And you will see there's the south uh, uh, part of southern America, and there's the Antarctic uh, mainland. That is taken because the spectral image is looking at a particular characteristic line, characteristic of ozone. And we'll see how we do that in a minute. The ozone hole problem is one of the problems that we've been so interested in throughout the last 20 years. It was discovered by accident, like all good experiments uh, results are. It's a very famous story that the British Antarctic Survey couldn't understand their instrument's results. So they threw the results away, because obviously they didn't give the result, right results. Later on, they thought about it, realized the reason for why they were seeing more ultraviolet light coming down to the polar region was that this region in the atmosphere made up of this special molecule ozone was being thinned. And as soon as this ozone layer becomes thin, the sunlight can penetrate. Normally, it would not get through. It would be absorbed and gets down and produces harmful UV radiation at the surface, which produces that skin burn and sunburn, skin cancer. In fact, it's, it's, it's actually, you may not know, but the period of most skin burn damages in British hospitals are actually in January and February. That's the largest number of cases they have because everybody in Britain is very careful to put on suntan lotion in the British summer, but when they go skiing, they don't. They all come back sunburned. And that's once when they have their peak admission to skin burn. Similarly, Another atmospheric phenomena is global warming. The suggestion is that gases in the Earth's atmosphere absorb infrared radiation. Sunlight comes to the Earth's surface, warms it, hot radiation 
actually comes out. The heat comes in this form of infrared radiation and is absorbed by gases in the atmosphere. If we didn't have an atmosphere, this planet would be rather barren, rather cold. But because we have an atmosphere with these particular gases, it acts just like a roof on a greenhouse, absorbs the infrared radiation and leads to the warming of the surface temperature. But if you put in more of the gas, which can absorb the infrared radiation, you trap more of the heat, which leads to more warming of the Earth's atmosphere and in turn on the Earth's surface, which is the global warming. And what is going in there? Well, it's molecules like carbon dioxide from burning, methane, N2O, and many chemical species produced by industry, including those made from semiconductors. We understand the basic physics. What we have to do is go out and measure it and put it all together in a model to make predictions of what's going to happen in these atmospheric processes. And so to do that, we have to measure the spectra of the molecules. We have to identify the fingerprints before we can go and look for them. And we also need to understand how the molecules are destroyed in the atmosphere. It's not just important of how they get there, it's also how we get rid of them. And that's what we do. That's the sort of experiments that we do here at the Open University and many other places around the world. And typically we measure spectra. They look something like this, some intensity versus wavelength. And they always have these little bands, these, 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 these lines, which are so characteristic of each individual molecule. So where do we go? Well, we often want to look at how ultraviolet light is absorbed by molecules, particularly for the ozone problem. And unfortunately, we're not allowed to make a sun in the laboratory. It's a bit hard to do, to have a fusion in your laboratory. So we have to find something that's going to produce us a mimic of the solar spectrum, which we can study. And one of the simplest things is, uh, instruments, is a synchrotron. This is the one at Darlesbury, Warrington, in, uh, in Cheshire. This is the canal uh, here, and this is the big building here where we do our experiments. Unfortunately, my students aren't quite so keen on Warrington. They prefer to go here to Denmark. Right? Don't ask me why they prefer Denmark over Warrington. You can work that one out for yourself. But this is the sort of machine that we have. It's a very sophisticated piece of apparatus. So there aren't so many in the world. So you have to go to them. What it consists of is basically a ring into which we inject electrons and we make them go at high speed. And it's a basic rule of physics that says if you have an electron traveling very fast, very fast means almost at the speed of light, and you bend it around a corner with a magnetic field, it emits light. And it emits a spectrum of light which is continuous, i.e. A, a spectrum which you can use parts of to mimic the sun. Now we have a little demonstration of this from my colleagues in Denmark. Some of you have seen this earlier today. This is the Danish synchrotron, lots of nice parts. And what we're going to do is we're going to put in some electrons from an accelerator in a minute. Here we go. So we start with an accelerator here. We accelerate some electrons. We put them into the ring where we accelerate them a bit more. And we make them go round and round. So here are the electrons going round and round. Now, as I said, when the electrons get to the corners and are bent, that's the area where they start to then emit a spectrum of light. And we'll see that hopefully in a minute. Here we come. Here's the light 
coming out. And you take that light and then you focus it into the experiments that you want to do. So here it comes. Here's the burst of light, pulses of light, white light, essentially, coming down my beam line. Here it comes. And then I want to make the colors that I want to see. So what I have to do at the end is get the light of the white wavelength that I want and then put it into an experiment that I want to do. Now, splitting light is very easy. Again, most of you will know, we can switch the... Right. What I have here is very simply a diffraction a grating, like you will have seen around, a simple diffraction grating with a white light behind it. If I switch on the white light, the grating, which is a series of lines basically etched in glass, will split the light up into the colors that I want. So, there you can see, hopefully, on the two sides, the left and the right, I have a spectrum of light. I've split up the white light, which is going out in the middle, to the two sides. And these spectrum on either side, I can then select that little bit of light of a particular color to do my experiment with. So I can make the light of the right wavelength that I want. Now what I want to do is to probe the spectroscopy of the molecule that I want to identify. So what I have to do is find some way of putting the light in, have something to contain the gas which I want to study, the molecule that I want to study, and detect what comes out. And we can demonstrate that just very easily with a tank of water here. What I've got here is, if you like, my, my uh, gas cell with no gas in it. Very simple. What I'm going to do is add the molecule that I want, to, I want to see. So if I can turn this on. If I add some of the molecule in the form of the milk, you will see that the light gets absorbed as it goes through the cell. Okay? If this light was one color, if there was a strong absorption line in the molecule, then it won't go through. It would be black at the other end. And that's how I can measure the spectral fingerprint of these molecules. And to be a little bit more physical, it's a very simple mathematical law. There's only one equation in this talk. I measure the light that comes out as a function of the light that goes in. And I can measure how much is absorbed by the number of molecules that are in the way, the distance they pass through, and a sector here which is called the cross-section. And the cross-section is very important because that tells me how strongly each molecule absorbs a particular wavelength. And that's what you need to do when you want to make models of the atmosphere. You need real numbers, not just effects. Those experiments look simple. What you then have to do is add the people. And this is the sort of environment that we work in. This is in Denmark. Our experiment sits up here on one of these lines. And you can see, like all good experiments, it's in a very small space. So this is uh, Ava, one of my PhD students here at the Empire University. And we send them off for a week. And we say, just stay there for a week. Right? And uh, of course, they work very hard, um, about uh, 20 hours a day. Right? Uh, and they come back. And at the moment, we're recording the spectrum last week. This was taken last week. Roughly one molecule per day. Okay? That gives you an idea of how quickly we can do these experiments. And so we've measured actually now over 50 molecules. Now probably after last week, maybe 60 molecules. 
right? And we get these sort of characteristic curves. This is energy or wavelength versus intensity. And each of these peaks that you see here, that's the characteristic fingerprint of the molecule. This molecule, C2F4, is used in the plasma industry. So if I want to see how this molecule is behaving in making a semiconductor etch, I might try and use the spectra to identify it in the plasma and follow what it does. Does it get reduced when the chemistry starts to get involved? Or I might make a species in the plasma and then watch the signal grow just by exploring its spectroscopy. And we can study other molecules. We've studied ozone. And we've discovered this lovely molecule here, which hasn't come out so well. It was better early this afternoon. It was playing with the colors. This is called OCLO. It's a compound which is very unstable, but it's very important in ozone depletion because it's the compound that the chlorine from the CFCs binds with the oxygen. And it's got a very characteristic spectrum down here. We call this the kind of stegosaurus spectrum, you know, those dinosaurs. It's very, very characteristic. So you can see it from a satellite, okay? Because these lines are so well organized that you can just identify it. And if you know that that's there, and you know that uh, the ozone is going down when this signal is going up, you know there's a link between the two. And that's how some of the work on ozone depletion was, was done. Unfortunately, we started this work about the mid-1990s, and it very rapidly became clear that these experiments, which were all nice gas-phase molecules, weren't enough. Most physics, most chemistry in the atmosphere actually happens on surfaces. So we have to move from doing gas-phase molecules, which are easy, if you like, to work on surfaces. And for the chemists, that's what we call heterogeneous or surface chemistry. The reason that became clear was the fact that the ozone depletion is actually due to surface chemistry in these particular clouds, what we call polar stratospheric clouds. Very special clouds that form in the Earth's stratosphere where the ozone is made and destroyed. And they're formed at a temperature of about minus 80 degrees. And when you get to minus 80 degrees, all this chemistry occurs on the surface of these ice particles. And the chemistry is quite different than if you were just doing gas phase. So to understand ozone depletion, you had to look at these. And these are what they actually look like. They're also called mother of pearl clouds and so on. You can actually see them occasionally. Right. They're quite lovely things. They have a very special chemistry. If you go into space, you also have ice. And one of the big discoveries in astronomy in the last 20 years has been to understand that an awful lot of the astrochemistry that goes on in space is molecular chemistry. And that was a surprise to a lot of people. 30 years ago, people thought there couldn't be any molecules in space, it was just hydrogen. There couldn't be any big molecules out there. We now know that space is full of rather interesting molecules. You've got acetic acid, vinegar, right? You've got glycine. You've got glycolaldehyde. You've got formic acid, right? uh, and it's in space. Right? This is a big surprise to people, but such a rich number of molecules should appear out there. And it occurs, most of these molecules are made in those bits of space which to you look dark. There's nothing there. Because what they're full of, this dark area, is what we call clouds of dust. Very thin clouds of dust, but nonetheless clouds of dust. They've only got a few hundred, a few hundred or a few thousand particles per cubic centimeter. It's quite diffuse, and it's also very cold. It's about 10 Kelvin, so very, very cold. 
And what we now believe happens is that these dust clouds accrete material from around them and gradually form ice layers around this dust. And this dust is believed to be kind of either carbon or silicate material. And then this dust, ice on top of it, is processed by starlight from the surrounding stars and by cosmic rays. And in this ice, all the chemistry to make all those molecules occurred. And eventually, something happens on these ices to liberate those molecules from the ice back into space so that by our spectroscopy, looking in the, in the microwave or in the infrared, we can identify and say those molecules are there. We can't see molecules so easily on ice. We see them much more easily in the gas phase. So this processing of dust grains is meant to underpin, believed to underpin, a lot of the chemistry. Indeed, it's how stars and planets actually form. This dust accreting under gravity, coming together, getting to critical mass, starts the whole formation. We also can go and look at planets and moons around our own solar system, most of which are cold, most of which are ice-covered. One of the interesting things which we've been, we're starting to look at uh, here at the Ember University in our incident is a rather interesting thing that was discovered a few years ago, that ozone has been found on two of Saturn's moons and one of Jupiter's moons. Now, it was always believed that ozone was a marker of biological life. To have ozone, you had to have an oxygen-rich atmosphere. That's how it's made. So it was quite a surprise to find signatures of ozone on the satellites, these moons, because we know they haven't got an oxygen-rich atmosphere. So how are they made? How is that ozone made? The other question is, these experiments, how these molecules are made, how these building blocks of life are made, may actually, if we could understand that, explain to us how life itself began. Do all these molecules out there, the simple building blocks that go on to make the nucleotide bases and so on of DNA, if they can be made in space, they can be made anywhere in space. And therefore, perhaps, the processes are universal. So there's nothing special about this solar system. It could be true in any other solar system. We need to understand the astrochemistry. And in fact, that sort of subject, the understanding of how life may start to get put together from the basic chemistry, has now got a name, and it's called astrobiology, which is a very topical subject in uh, in the world at the moment, there are lots of public articles and so on. And here at the Open University, we set up a centre with Barry Jones and, and John Bonetti and others two years ago to bring people together to talk about that. And of course, we've made many recent appointments in that area, and no doubt they will be getting up here giving talks in their professorial talks, uh, which will expand that story. Unfortunately, we actually know very little about what happens on ISIS. So you have to go and build experiments. And that's what takes the time. We have to build ourselves a replication of the solar, of interstellar space. So the first thing we have to do is make it very empty. And we have to pump it out to very low pressures. And even the best pressures that we can get are still a million times denser than the interstellar medium. Then we have to make it very cold. So we have to cool it down with liquid helium and liquid nitrogen to get us down to 15 Kelvin or something. Then we've got to have a way of examining what we've made when we process these ices. We've frozen them, we want to process them, we want to detect. 
So we have to understand the spectroscopy of these molecules that we see. And this is the sort of instrument that we've built over in the labs here at the Open University. We have one now fully operational, one still being built. The experiments are simple. We put the ice down on the surface. We then measure the thickness. We need to know that. We process it with electrons, ions, or photons. And then we pass the light beam through the ice and see what molecular signatures come up from the ice. And that's the sort of apparatus we do. We can go and take these and put them on a synchrotron. This is a picture, again, taken on asteroid because asteroid is mimicking the sun, the starlight. We can use photons, but we know that light, that light alone isn't processing these. In fact, we know on the moons of Saturn and Jupiter that actually it's the ions from the magnetosphere, the ions around the planet, which actually process the, iron, the, the ice. And that's how we believe that the ozone is formed. Is actually iron impact from the magnetosphere of these planets, hurling into the ice, producing chemistry. We have a wide variety of, of instruments that we can use, and you have to assemble these all together. It costs money and it costs time, and you need PhD students to do it. But we now have just about got uh, all the sources we need. We've got lamps here. We can go to synchrotrons at Darlesbury and Aarhus. We've now got an electron gun. We haven't got it operational yet, but we've got it. And we can go and use our colleagues' machines in, in Belfast, some of which are here, to do some iron processing. So we've got the whole suite to look at these experiments. I remind you, however, that one hour of radiation in our lab is equivalent to 1,000 to 10,000 years in space. So there's always a question that even if you're trying to do the best mimics that you can in the lab, are we really doing it as it happens in space? But I don't think the Vice Chancellor and the research office here would be too happy if I told my PhD students they've got to wait 1,000 years for their PhD. And I think it probably would be difficult to recruit them. Just to show you an idea of what we can do, this is a, a spectrum of ice. It mainly consists of water, and we've added some carbon dioxide to it. Okay? So all these bands here, we know what they are. We know enough about the spectrum of these molecules, these fingerprints to know it. And what we can do, or what we did do with people in Belfast, was irradiate it with ions. In this particular case, a single photon from, uh, from uh, hydrogen. And if you irradiate it for an hour, what you see is that these, the, 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 peak, the peak starts to gradually change and you get other peaks appearing. So taking water and CO2, you start to break up the CO2 and make carbon monoxide. That's not terribly surprising. If you've broken up carbon monoxide, you've got spare oxygen rattling around. That oxygen goes and finds another one of these carbon dioxides and joins onto it to make CO3. If you break up the water and you break up the CO2 as well, they react and they can make this compound, which is called carbonic acid. So you get a rich chemistry, that's what you can see. You can do this as a function of time and see how long it takes to make these molecules. So here's my mixture, and I'm just going to step through in, takes about an hour. There we go. We warm up the ice for an hour. And as we warm the ice up, we evaporate the volatile materials, the water and the CO2 gradually comes off, and what we're left with is the stickier stuff that's left behind, which in this particular case is this carbonic acid. And astronomers will tell you that there are some evidence of a carbonic acid appearing in places like Martian surface and so on. So, so far what I've talked about is the use of, of light. Where are the electrons? Why do the electrons come in? 
What is 2005? It's Einstein year. Okay. Einstein made that key link between photons and electrons by the process known as the photoelectric effect. And what happens is that photons can liberate electrons when they're shone onto a surface, to a metal surface. It's a classic experiment. It's also one of the pioneering experiments to explain quantum mechanics. You can't understand this if quantum mechanics doesn't exist. So basically what you do is you shine light onto a surface and electrons come off. And if you shine different colors of light onto the surface, you get electrons off, but if you use the wrong color, sometimes no electrons come off. And that's because the photons don't have enough energy to liberate the electrons from the surface. Okay? So the electrons, there's not enough energy coupled to the surface to get the electrons off. Then it's a slightly different wavelength. The electrons do have enough energy to come off. And if you put more energy in, they come off basically fast. What do those electrons then do? Well, electrons can do all the things that photons can do to molecules. They can excite them. But mostly what happens when you take an electron and you bounce it off an atom, although it's very small, an electron's even smaller, 2,000 times smaller, they just bounce off. Elastic scattering, just like billions. But every so often, they transfer energy, kinetic energy, from the electron to the atom and excite it. And they can even have enough energy to ionize the atom or ionize the molecule and make it an ion. And these processes, again, occur all over nature. These lovely pictures I showed you at the beginning of the aurora are the classic example of that. The Earth's a big magnet. Electrons and other processes are pulled into the poles of the Earth. And as they come down, they accelerate at high speed. They clash into the atoms and the molecules of the atmosphere. Some, and they ionize them and they excite them. And what you see here in the aurora are the excited atoms and the excited molecules. And you get a characteristic color. You know that the oxygen's coming, the red lines are coming from oxygen. If you look in the ultraviolet, you get a very strong aurora feature. feature. Our eyes don't see it, but you can see it with instruments. And that's coming from molecular nitrogen. Again, it's the electrons that drive all the processes in the plasma. The electrons pass the energy into the molecule, break them up, make them become chemically active, and ultimately do the etching of the silicon waste. But how do you know what's going on in the plasma? Well, the electrons also excite the molecules in the plasma. They make them glow. They make the light come back out. So if I want to study the plasma process, I look at the light coming out of the plasma. I look at the characteristic spectra. That tells me what molecules are in there. And then I can also study the electron processes to understand how they're actually doing what we can see. There's a coupling then between the observation of the light and our understanding of what the electrons do. And in fact, what that tells you is that electrons can actually measure the spectra of the molecule. If I take an electron in and it bounces off an atom, it will transfer some energy, but only the energy needed to excite particular levels. So the electron will lose particular amounts of energy, characteristic of, a, of the state of the molecule, characteristic of the fingerprint, again. And that is a technique which is called energy loss spectroscopy, which is where I first started, if you like, my PhD many years ago, where we take electrons, 
accelerate them, focus them, make them very narrow, so we've got very well-defined energy. We pass them across a gas beam, and then we look and see what's happened afterwards. And every time they excite particular states of the molecule, they give out characteristic heat. And that's what we call an energy loss spectrum. This is a very interesting energy loss spectrum. This is a molecule called SF5CF3. It's believed to be the molecule with the largest global warming potential of any in the atmosphere. It was molecule of the year. Most people don't know there's a molecule of the year, but there is actually a molecule of the year. And this was molecule of the year in about 2000, because all of us ran around to measure it. And the big question was, we didn't know where it came from. This was seen in the Earth's atmosphere. Nobody knew where it was from. Nobody even knew how to go out and measure it and find it. Now we know it's coming from the semiconductor people, and they've had to take steps uh, to get rid of it because it's not that friendly. If I take an electron, though, with very, very low energy, so that it's hardly moving past the atom or past the molecule, just going very slowly, what can happen is very unusual. It can stick. And it forms what we call a negative ion, the atom plus an electron makes it negatively charged. But it only sits there for a very short period of time normally. Most systems, it's unstable. And in a very, very short period of time, 10 to the minus 14 seconds or so, it comes off again. But the molecule knows it's gone through this process. And often what happens is the molecule is left excited or even broken up. And we have a very special process, which is called dissociative electron attachment, which we've had two-day meeting on roughly here. And just to show you what that is, the electrons come into a molecule ABC, they stick to it, and then it breaks up. And I can either have an A minus and BC, or I can fragment the whole thing, or occasionally I can just get back to ABC plus an electron. Perhaps one of the most interesting things in the last five years is that this process, which for a long time was known to be interesting, since have studied it, uh, wasn't, was, is the number of applications it's now having. Everywhere we look, we find low energy electrons are doing something. And they're very, very low energy, often. They are now responsible, maybe, for some of the DNA damage. They're responsible for some of the surface chemistry. They are probably very important in these semiconductor plasmas because there is a method for breaking up the molecule. Now, chemistry, sorry, David, right? chemistry, of course, is really only a sub-branch of physics, right? Okay, right? And chemistry is all about getting molecules to do things. And what you really want a molecule to do is usually to break up and make a, a species which can then initiate some chemistry, usually what we call a radical species. Well, these low-energy electrons are very good at doing that. They're very good at making these sort of things, which can then trigger further chemistry. And you don't need the energy which you might think you need to break a chemical bond. Everybody knows they've heard of chemical bonds, knows that they've got a particular amount of energy. The surprising thing with low-energy electrons is you can put in milli-electron volts of energy, tiny amounts of energy, almost zero amount of energy, and somehow they will rupture the bond of the molecule. That's a very surprising thing. And so you can use electrons to tune the products of a reaction. If you change the energy of the electron, you can actually tune the pathway.
And we can see that with a whole series of molecules, CFCl3, for instance, we can split it and we can make chlorine minus ions, which means we know we've got CCFCO2. We can kick out an F minus. We can choose what energy we want. We can process molecules on surfaces this way. A very nice example is to go back to ozone. I can lay down a surface of oxygen, molecular oxygen. I can shine electrons on it for 100 seconds. And it breaks up, produces some oxygen atoms, which collide with oxygen molecules, and make ozone. And in fact, you can change the whole surface in a few seconds. I can shine electrons onto DNA, and I can break particular parts of the DNA. Some of these molecules inside the DNA, these nucleotide bases, something discovered by Leon Sange, who's here. And what happens is the electron comes in, and somehow what you get is what we call a single-strand break. You break one side of the helix, or you can do a double break, two si other sides of the helix. And what's been discovered in the last five years is that these patterns of strand break seem to be linked to particular interactions between these low-energy electrons and the molecules that make up the DNA. And here it is. There's a, a picture of the, these strand breaks as a function of electron energy. And you see they're not smooth. They've got these characteristic bumps. And if I do the same experiments on the molecules that make up DNA, thymine, guanine, cytosine, and so on, I find, again, peaks in the same place as these occur. And this is work done um, by a colleague in Canada and in Germany who um, have been involved in many programs that we're involved with. So there's a coupling between low energy electrons and the very fundamental parts of how DNA. And as the biology question is, is that how they were made? Is that how they were destroyed? We have no idea. Finally, I asked the question at the beginning, how do we see molecules? Well, we can see molecules with electrons. We can see a single molecule now, or single atom, by a technique called scanning tunneling microscopy. Basically, what you have is a very sharp tip through which you pass an electron current. It goes down onto the surface, and the electrons hop from the tip to the surface. As you scan the tip across the surface, the current between the tip and the surface changes depending on the roughness of the surface. So if, the if there's a molecule sitting up from the top, as you move your very narrow tip, which should almost be one atom thick at the end, over this current between the tip and the surface to very subtly change. So you can measure, by measuring this current, you can measure the surface profile. If you put a molecule in one particular place on the surface and use this instrument, you can then actually see molecules. This is a picture of cesium and iodine atoms together on a surface. And it doesn't look like a molecule as you might think of it from school, these nice sort of pictures, because you're not imaging the geometry of it, you're actually imaging the charge pattern, the pattern of the electrons in the molecule. So you can actually um, get that information. But these are nano, this is on a nanometer scale, and that's why we do nanotechnology. Once you can image atoms, you can move them, and you can put them where you like. Now, does anybody know what that says? Who's Japanese? It means atom, right. 
this quite right. This is Japanese for atom. And so what they did here is they took iron atoms on copper and they moved them into very particular places to spell out uh, the characters of atoms. So using electrons, understanding how electrons interact with scanning tunneling microscopes, you can build instruments like these scanning tunneling microscopes, which actually enable you to individually play with atoms. You can even do individual chemistry. This is an experiment done in, in Berlin, by again, some people who are in the room, where they took a molecule C6H5I and they used this tip to break it. They used the electrons to pass through the molecule and cleave it and split it up. And for reasons we won't go into, it splits to make C6H5 and I. And then you can take one of these fragments of C6H5, drag it across the surface, and in Blue Peter's edition, make it react with one you prepared earlier and make another molecule. And this is what we call single molecule engineering. We can play with individual molecules. We can make them do what we want. All we need is money. So what I've tried to do in this talk is at a very genetic level, take you through all of the things that are interesting with, with light and electrons. Because at the end of the day, our world is dominated by the interaction of light with molecules and electrons with molecules. And we are entering a new and exciting area. The last five to 10 years, the applications, the things that we can do with new instruments have blossomed. Things that were five years ago or 10 years ago, I would never have thought of, we're now actually starting to do. We're manipulating bits of DNA. We're trying to understand how to make new semiconductor plasmas by choosing, playing with each individual molecule and trying to work out what's the best way and the energy in a plasma to make it tune to make the right species. So we've got a new century. We've got a new era. We've still got new challenges and new opportunities. We can see the molecules, we can manipulate them. What's going to come next? Where are we going to go in this century? Well, if I knew the answer to that, I would be able to tell your stars. And so I'll be able to write a book like that. We don't know where we're going to go. We don't know five years ago what we know now. And that's what makes it so exciting to be a physicist and to be a scientist. That's what we're here for. Understand and look at exciting new things. And one of the great joys of being a, 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 a scientist, and even more so of being at the Ember University, is to come here and meet new people, come up with new ideas. When you move to university, you meet new people who look upon things with a different aspect. And that's what we're trying to do here, trying to think of new things. So lots of exciting experiments are going to be developed here. We're building new laboratories. We've generously got the money from the university to do that. We've developed a lot of links in the past. Many of the people here are involved in our European networks. The great thing about being a scientist now is a friendly international community. My group is full of students from many different countries. This is the team. The ones in yellow were the ones who are students at the University College. At the Open University now, we have people uh, from Slovakia, from Poland, from India. Uh, we have people from Austria. We have interactions with people from India. All over Europe, Japan, India, and so on. And these are many of my colleagues who uh, I've worked with and are still working with and collaborating with in this area. And so I'd like to thank all of you for paying attention to this lecture. I hope I've given you a flavor of some of the excitement of the things that we want to do. 
And finally, I should thank all my colleagues for all the help you've given me over the years. Thank you. I'm Phil Potts, Dean of Science, and it's my privilege to offer a vote of thanks to Nigel for the incredibly varied and impressive talk that he's just given in his inaugural lecture. I think he, he has undoubtedly shown his communication skills, both visually and verbally, in making molecular physics interesting, a challenging subject perhaps to some. Uh, I, I did want to sort of illustrate a few other aspects of his character as well, and I need to tell a little anecdote related to, I think, probably the first few weeks of the Vice Chancellor's presidency, as it were, of the Open University, because um, she was invited to science to have an overview of all our, uh, our activities. And at that time, I was sub-dean research, and I remember giving uh, a very bullish um, uh, overview of all the research activities within science. And I ended by inviting her to participate in scientific research. And I don't think either myself or any of my colleagues have managed to achieve that until Nigel and his experiment with a, an oil drop this evening. So I think many congratulations uh, on, on that aspect. I, I did um, trawl through your personal file in advance of this afternoon just to see if any skeletons dropped out or any, if there were any uh, nuggets of information in there. And, and there was a comment from one of the referees at your appointment, which I think um, illustrates your character in a very complimentary manner. And, and I think the, the, the thesis is that um, apart from getting into the argument about physics being a sub-branch of chemistry, <laughs> that, that if you were to metamorphose physics into something to do with energy transfer, either by particles or photons or collisions or whatever, one of your referees commented that you had both the energy and enthusiasm, which were pretty much unparalleled. And I think you should take that as a considerable compliment that you more than displayed this evening. There was one serious deficiency in the presentation that you made, however. And this, this came from a comment from a colleague who's sitting quite close to me, who challenged your assertion that the spectral profile was that of a stegosaurus, <laughs> and reliably told me that it was a dimetrodon. Right. Um, so we expect a correction in that aspect of any future presentation that you, you make. But I, I think just, just to finish this, um, I, I think the other aspect that for which you require immense compliments is your capabilities of organizing your inaugural lecture as being the last scientific presentation of a two-day scientific conference on behalf of the European Science Foundation, which you've been leading over the last two years. So well done on that. But overall, I think, could I, on behalf of everyone here, thank you for the very impressive contribution you make, may, have made this afternoon in, in celebrating all the work you've done uh, at the Open University and to wish you every success in your future activities. Thank you very much.